First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's programme, we're joined by the journalist and author, Anthony Satin. He'll be discussing how the world we know today has been shaped by the nomads of the past. Anthony Satin is a contributing editor to Condé Nast Traveller and a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. His new book, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World, examines how the way in which we live today has been influenced in part by the ancient cities and also the historical nomads who travelled between them. Our host for today is Rosamond Irwin, media editor of the Sunday Times. Let's join Rosamond now. Anthony, what I wanted to start with was addressing why you think contemporary historians have overlooked nomadic populations so much and why it's so important to address this balance. Well, firstly, I don't think it's just contemporary historians. I think it's all historians have, have missed the nomadic element in our story. And the reason for it is, well, there's several reasons. One of them is is quite simple, and that is nomads have not generally kept records. So it's, even if you wanted to write a history, and, and I know this from you know personal experience having written this book, it's very, very difficult to gather the information. But you know, there's there's a, a great line from um from an Oxford and Princeton historian describing history as a path picked through ruins. And you know, it's it's very evocative. It sort of talks about it, it invokes sort of something like a highway of history, and it starts with you know early early monuments, and it comes through to the great skyscrapers and things of today. And this is the point I started with. I thought, well, but that that doesn't that means there's no place for nomads unless they are because they tend not to build monuments unless they're the ones who destroyed those monuments, which means that. In, the, in our conventional histories, nomads are generally pre- presented as the destroyers. And that's, you know, well, it's just not true. And, you know, there's a reason for, for, for doing this now, this book. I mean, I think we, we're living in such an interesting period of, of history. I mean, I'm not a, naturally a, a historian. I'm not an academic. I don't, you know, have a chair in, in history, nomadic history at Oxford or something. But... Uh, but, uh, you know, I was fascinated by this, this omission. And I sort of, the more I looked into it, I mean, there are, of course, 
you know, some serious books on on the nomad empires of the of the Central Asian steppes, and you know, and and obviously lots of books on the Aborigines and the and nomads in in Africa. But as a general history, as a sort of you know, as a as a broad sweep, it's simply not there. And I thought, well, that's that's extraordinary and wonderful, and I therefore have to write it. There's a fascinating study right at the end of the book that you discussed about babies and the importance and sort of how ingrained walking actually is in in all of us. Um, I wonder if you could tell us about that research. I think I was probably particularly interested uh, as I have a young son who was only that <laughs> while being carried, you know, as I walked. So I thought this, this sure. particularly resonated with me, but it's very really interesting. Well, it's great because this does come right at the very end. So it's a good, I was holding you to the end of the book. Yes, it's, it's research that was actually done in the 60s and 70s in, in London into the effect of movement on, on children, on, on babies. And it was discovered that, you know, a, a baby left to, to scream on its own, a heartbeat will get up to about 200 beats a minute. And if you pick it up and, you know, and it, as a parent, you and I both know this, you pick it up and start rocking it from side to side, it will calm down a bit. What the research discovered was that if you rock it at 60 beats a minute, the heartbeat will come, well, firstly, it'll stop crying, and the heartbeat will come right down. And, the, and also that if you tilt the angle slightly, then also the, the, the child, the baby will calm. And the inference from this is that this is a sort of throwback from a time, some sort of uh, memory muscle we have, of, of a time when we were all living on the move. And therefore, we, when you were a baby and you were strapped to your mother's back and she was on the move, you were, you were safe. And you were moving, which meant that you were in a pack, and therefore you were doubly safe, and therefore you could stop crying because you know, cr crying is, is, is a panic, a panic response. So yes, that's and and it it ties into something else I write about in the book, which is um, research that was done in the states more recently into genetic variants. And that these researchers from Northwestern University in the states discovered one particular variant of a gene that they identified in successful nomads in a tribe in East Africa, and obviously there are more some nomads are more successful than than others, and these were. Nomads who were, you know, who were leading the, leading the tribe, who were better fed, who had larger families because they could afford to to look after them, and they found this same variant in children who were diagnosed with learning disorder in the United States with attention deficit disorder, and they're scientists, so they obviously were, were reluctant to make the obvious conclusion, and that is that there's a link between these two, and that maybe these children are simply not happy or or succeeding because they're in the wrong place and the, so put, to put them in a, in a classroom is maybe not to bring out the best in them if you put them into a into a different environment and maybe into a nomadic environment that they would thrive and the suggestion behind that is that twelve thousand years ago which is where my book opens we all lived on the move and our brains were ourselves were programmed in a completely different way. We needed different skills and different instincts and different responses. And now more than 50% of us live in urban environments. And, and obviously there's a, a huge toll on, on ourselves to live in that way. And 12,000 years in the human story is, is but yesterday. So that maybe many of us have simply not reprogrammed. Um, of course, there are actually still some nomadic populations today, and you start the book in, in the Zagros Mountains in Iran, watching watching the annual migration of a, of a tribe there. Uh, you say one thing you say is that 
a sort of universal issue for nomadic people is that governments put pressure on them to settle. Could you just explore what those pressures are and, and why they come sort of so into conflict with how essentially our settled people live our lives? Well, there's on a governmental level, um, I mean, I've seen this all over the Middle East, which is where I've spent a lot of my, my adult life. And um, that it, people who move around and have no fixed abode are very diff difficult to control. And so they're very often, you know, the stories in, in Syria, I heard that all the, all the Bedouin women were prostitutes. In, in Egypt, you hear that the Bedouin men are smuggling drugs or in Libya, they're smuggling arms or which they may well have been actually recently. But, or, you know, there's always some sort of, some sort of negative thing associated with them. And so governments also like to tax people. And so they hold out these twin carrots of, of the, for the young and the old. And that is, if you want to educate your child, and if you're living in the 21st century, you generally do, then you're going to have to put your child into school. And so, for instance, with the nomads, the Bakhtiari that I write about at the beginning of the book in, in the Zagros Mountains in Iran, the, they, the whole family doesn't have to stop moving, but the children are put into a government-sponsored boarding school. So that's one side of it. And the other side is for the elderly. You want health care? You need, you need to be effectively sort of signed up with a doctor, with a clinic. And therefore, again, it's another way of getting people to settle and, and control them. But it's interesting because there are some places, obviously, where it's in the government's interest to have people still moving. So, for instance, in Iran, there is a ministry that looks after nomadic affairs. And there are still a, a, lot, of, a lot of nomads, simply because... The landscape simply doesn't doesn't allow for much agriculture. It's it's a very very harsh. It's either mountains or it's desert. Most of Iran, and so for most of Iranian history, Persian history, the the, the people who lived there were nomadic. I think the nomads today produce about a third of all Iran's meat. By and that's what this migration is all about. They they go in search of grass. Well, there isn't enough grass to to keep the the herds going through the whole year. So they had their summer and their winter grazing, and they move between the two. Tell us more about the Scythians, who are people you cover in the book. Obviously, an ancient Eastern Iranian equestrian, nomadic people. But one we know or hear or learn a lot less about, for example, at school than other ancient populations. Yes, they're just not, they're just not on the curriculum. Uh, well, well, not yet. I mean, they might be. And, and obviously, I'm, try, I'm trying to put them onto the curriculum. But there was an exhibition in the British Museum had a big show about five years ago of the Scythians. And, um, and obviously, I, I went to it and it had beautiful, very sophisticated jewellery. You know, everything about them was fascinating and beautiful. But I, there was also a conference of all the sort of Scythian experts from around the world at the same time as that exhibition. And just to show you the difficulty of trying to write about these people or trying to study them. So three days of conference and papers and whatever. And then what the, the reality is that we don't even know what they called themselves. They, you know, we don't know that they called themselves Scythians, but they came off the, there's this sort of huge step land that runs more or less from Hungary to Manchuria to China. And in the Western part, so from here to Kazakhstan, to the Altai mountains, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's long, flat, gra grassy, very good for grazing, very good for horses. And it's a bit harsher because it's higher up Mongolia and, you know, that's, that's a much harder landscape. But though that's, this is the great step corridor that links the east and the west of Eurasia. It's sort of the great landmass of the world. And one by one, that because people who live on this, um, on, on this step were, have always been nomadic, they, they get, either they, 
they move down because of uh, climate change or a warming or a cooling that makes it impossible for them to live up there. So they've come down either into China or, or, or into the West, sometimes um, into Hungary, sometimes down into the Middle East, or sometimes down into Pakistan and, and down the Indus, Indus River. And, you, and when they come, they, they bring innovation, they bring fresh blood, they bring, they bring trouble for the people who, who are living there already because they, they need to settle. And one by one, you have lots and lots of tribes over thousands of years moving down, and the Scythians were one of them. And what we know about the Scythians is that, that more or less, from, yes, from you know, the, the western part of, from Turkey onwards uh, to the east, uh, to about maybe into Kazakhstan, they controlled a vast amount of territory, they and their, and their friendly other friendly nomadic tribes. And from the middle of there to China, to the Great Wall of China, there was a, a tribe called the Xiongnu. Again, we don't know what they called themselves because they certainly didn't call themselves Xiongnu because it means in Chinese, sons of slaves or something like that. So, so again, we, don't, we, don't, we know very little about them. But they, from about 600 BC to about 300 of the, of the current era, there appears to be this vast territory between the Roman world and the Chinese or the Han Chinese world controlled by a confederation of steppes. And I, I actually call it an empire, although, we, I mean, we don't know much about their um, administrative structure. But it seems that be because you find similar, I mean, one thing is they have left behind are these huge graves, which are sort of massive mounds, some of them a couple of hundred meters around, with lots and lots of, the, the, the biggest of them have a lot of horses that were sacrificed uh, when, when the dead person was being interred. Sometimes you have two or three different burials in them. Uh, and you have women as well as men being buried in grand style with gold, with cauldrons, with Chinese silks, with animal furs, and also with, with uh, porcelain. And, so the, it, and you find this in east and west of this huge step. So the su suggestion is that these people were in touch with each other and trading with each other. And they were connecting, although the Ro neither the Romans or the, or the Chinese acknowledged this, that they were connecting these two worlds. They were the conduit for not just goods, but ideas that travel between East and West. But the story we get from, from the historians is one, well, the Chinese built the Great Wall to try and keep the Xiongnu out. And the Romans tried to build a, a similar wall in, in the very far East of their empire to keep the uh, Scythians and, and, and others out. And of course it fails because you can't, walls don't work, we know this. And actually what these people wanted were open markets because they wanted to trade. They had, they had things they, they couldn't produce on the steps that they needed from settled people. And th this is one of those themes that runs through the book and it's, and it's one, of the big, yeah, one, of the, one of the big facts of the book. And that is that throughout history, Although our, book, our history books, if they write about nomads, they present them as, as, as people who destroy things. Actually, most of, of history settled in nomadic people lived very happily together because they were mutually dependent. They needed each other. And, and, and they need, yes, they needed to trade. So the happy times are when the markets are open and, you know, and, people, and the, the nomads can come to the markets, which are invariably set up by settled people and trade their goods. And when you have unhappy times, for instance, the Roman Empire falls when the Huns arrive. Well, the Huns arrive because the Romans keep closing the, the, trade, the trading posts. You do address one other very unhappy time in the book, which is the Black Death. And obviously there is the trade routes are one 
of the elements of, of that. There's always a habit of blaming outsiders for disease and you know across human history. How often were nomadic people? Were they often blamed? Um, is there an element of that? Oh, they were always blamed. There's a wonderful description from Sumer from about 2000 BC, or maybe maybe even early, two and a half thousand BC, where there's a, a Sumerian princess who, who's fallen in love with a, a nomad and her friends are trying to dis- persuade her not to do this. And, and you know, the, so it's, well, you can't marry him because, you know, he's not one of us and you can't marry him because he wears leather and you can't marry him because he eats raw meat. And, you know, and there's this is a long litany of things of, of, that, well, you a similar list to things you might hear today. And he doesn't know how to say his prayers properly. And when he dies, he won't be buried in a mausoleum. Sort of, and and you get this these stories coming out from deep, deep history. Think of Cain and Abel. It starts starts with that, really, the mistrust of the settled, of the, uh, of the nomadic, down to our own time. I mean, in our own time, you know, we're very worried about travelers and, and others. Who are these people? Why have they come? Where have they come from? What do they want from us? And, and so, yeah, that plays the whole way through. And, and yeah, sometimes there, there's, a, there's very good reason to be anxious about the arrival of nomads. And we'll, we'll, I'll come on to the Mongols in a minute. But another, another story about the Scythians before, we, before we're done with them, because the, the Scythians get bad press for killing the great Persian king, the founder of the Persian empire, Cyrus the Great. But the story that is recorded by Herodotus and others is very clear, and that is that the, the Scythians then had a queen, which is, which is to their credit. They, they, they definitely allowed women equal status in many, 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 many affairs. And the Scythian queen, Cyrus is invading Scythian land. And the Scythian queen says, don't do it. Don't cross the river. You don't need to do this. We don't need to fight. And, and he says, well, he wants the Scythians to pay respect to him because he thinks he's the ruler of the world. And the Persians do cross the river and a great fight ensues and Cyrus loses his head. And so the Persians were not very impressed with that. And so the jump forward about 50 years to Darius the Great, the, the next great Persian emperor, and he tries to do the same. He invades Scythia. And by then there's a Scythian king. And there's a, this is something I love. So the Scythians just won't confront this enormous Persian army, which might be 700,000, might be more. They just keep moving away. They just move across the land further and further until eventually, and Darius's supply lines are getting more and more stretched and winter is coming and he's getting worried. So he sends a very fast messenger after the Scythian king to say, why won't you fight? I mean, either fight or pay me tribute as your lord. And the Scythian king says, why would we fight? We have no cities that, we, that you might destroy. We have no crops that you might burn. We've got, we, we have nothing to worry about. And so they just kept on moving. And eventually the Persians gave up and went home. And it's sort of, you know, it's just a brilliant clash of, of not of civilizations, but of ideas of, of how one might be. The Persians moving with all their all their gold and glitter and and women and heavy baggage or whatever, and the city is just lightly moving ahead ahead of them. They, we don't need to fight. It's okay. But jump. Sorry. No, it's just that you prompted me to ask about Genghis Khan. So um, obviously, whose yes. <laughs> name really does resonate, and and obviously uh, known as being a sort of uh, a vengeful killer and also uh, sexually. Uh, well, prolific, I suppose, would be a word. Um, yes, what, yes. What 
we misunderstand in that portrayal of Genghis Khan? And and is is there much more that we should know? There's a yes. There's much much more we should know. Genghis Khan, you know, comes out of uh, a, a small tribe in in Mongolia. Uh, uh, if you've read Colin Subron's The Amur River, which came out came out uh, last year or this year, then you, he, that starts uh, the Amur River, which is the tenth longest river in the world, starts. It's originally called the Onon River, and that's the heartland of the Mongol people, and that's where Genghis Khan comes out of. But always goes back to Karakorum, the, the famous Mongol city, is is not far from there. But um, he, so he comes out of this small tribe, and he's you know, and he's fighting. But he has a vision, which is sort of inspired by he's a sky worshiper. He worships the Sky Father, which is a typical Indo-European religion. The you, you worship all the elements, and the the Sky Father, which then plays out in Christianity as our our Father who art in heaven, he's still in the sky. It is. Genghis Khan has the idea that it was in his destiny and ordained by the Sky Father that he should rule the world. And so he builds from his very, very small power base of sort of several hundred people, a coalition until there are millions of them. And he and builds this Mongol empire, which stretches from China again to, you know, to the West. And he becomes the most powerful person in the world. This is 1100s into the early 1200s of our time. And you know, think about English history at this time. I mean, there's, you know, it's not our most glorious period. We've come out of the Dark Ages, but the Crusades are going on, and and Renaissance is still a long way in the distance. So, the you you have this man who who has done what nobody else in the world is doing at that time, and he creates the largest empire the world has ever seen, enormous, and he does it the way that it was done at that time, and probably still is done if you look at what's happening. To the to the east of Europe at the moment, with with warfare, and you know warfare was not pretty. The Crusades were not pretty. What what our great Christian warriors did was not pretty, and but there's there's a reason for this sort of absolute horror blitz approach that Genghis Khan has when he's approaching people. He always he always offered peace. You know, give in to me, and I won't destroy your cities. And you know, and you can pay your tribute, and you can go 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 around living as you lived before. And if if you if people resisted, then he attacked. And he, but it had to be quick because the Mongols were very bad at siege warfare because they're nomads and they have you know each rider has each you know, Mongol fighter has several horses. That's a lot. If you've got hundreds of thousands of riders, that's millions of horses. What are they going to eat? So you can't stay in one place for very long. They have to keep on moving. And so the idea of you know why why he killed so many people in certain places was that firstly they hadn't accepted his offer of paying paying tribute to him, and so he went to war and he went to war as quickly and as savagely as he could, so that the next people down the line would understand. That it was in their interest to to give up very quickly, but it was also in the interest of the no, of the nomads as well. Not that I'm an apologist for Genghis Khan; he did kill millions of people. But uh, but also great things came out of this. You know, this is a time when most of Europe is is absolutely closed. But what Genghis Khan sets up, and it is followed, um, you know, hundred hundred and something years later by one of his successors, uh, Tamerlane or Tamburlaine, as we sometimes call him the great uh, Emir Timur, who's come comes out of the same Mongol stock. 
um, is a sort of a, a, an open, a massive open Central Asia, open for trade. This is the beginning of the of this really great flourishing of the of the Silk Roads, so linking China with with the Mediterranean. They're open for so you have freedom of movement, you have freedom of conscience as well. I mean, he's not interested in. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or Muslim. And Karakorum, the city that he found, well, in fact, in his own life, it's really just a tent city, but it, one of his successors builds it up into a proper settled town city. It has churches of various denominations. It has mosques. It has, and they're still praying to Sky Father and to the elements. And basically, it didn't matter. And then they become Buddhists. And it doesn't, that, that's of no interest. Everybody is welcome. So the important thing, is free movement and free trade. So they made trade tariffs very low. They were, you know, they were sort of early Keynesian economists. I think they liked to, they wanted to see their their money moving. There's a there's a moment where one of one of the Mongol khans, who we all know, Kublai Khan, goes into the imperial treasury and sees all this gold and silver and says, "What's this doing? Give it away. It has to keep moving, and it'll come back to us." You know, was sort of tenfold. So that was very much the and they. They set up, following the Roman example and uh, before that, the Persian example, they set up highways. I mean, not, obviously not paved as we would understand them, but, but clear routes the whole way across Central Asia, where it was said that if you were a young girl, you could walk with a gold bowl on your head and nobody would tr trouble you. Well, they wouldn't trouble you because the punishments were so extreme. And... You know, later on, they build a, set, a, a series of hostels where if you have a little, the right coin... You, if you've been if you've been approved to stay in the hostels, you're going to get bed and board and a fresh mount. And if you have the gold, the golden coin, you're going to get silk sheets. You're going to get a real feast. You're, you know, it's it, it's it's a five star hotel. And you know, this side of Genghis Khan is just not known at all. And in out of this comes, you know, the out of all these Mongol movements, east and west, does come the Black Death, which is absolutely devastating, obviously. Although it's still not quite clear where it came from, but it may well have come. I mean, it certainly came from somewhere in Central Asia. But also comes all of the the, set, the foundations for the Renaissance, all of the ideas, and and for instance, paper brought by brought by Mongols from China, and uh, gunpowder, which obviously the Europeans scale up and turn into lots and lots of deadly weapons, whereas the Chinese initially had it for their religious festivals, and the compass. You know, all these are brought as long, long time before the taming of the horse, uh, riding horses and the bridle and the chariot. All those came off the steps brought by nomads. Well, I wanted to touch on that because this is a theme throughout the book, that the ability to ride was a revolution, the equine revolution. And perhaps we don't think enough about quite how much that changed things. Well, as we, I mean, it's interesting. We're now moving away from the combustion engine slowly, but we will, you know, as our means of transport. And uh, Wilfred Thesiger, who himself was rather partial to nomads, who I went to talk to in his old age when I was just beginning to travel, used to, used to call the combustion engine the sort of curse of mankind. And he spent his, his last years trying to find people who weren't touched by it. But if you think the combustion engine will, you know, will maybe have lasted 150 years by the time it's, it's extinct, the horse was the mode of transport for thousands and thousands of years. The New York Fire Brigade was still using horses to pull their fire trucks at the beginning of the 20th, beginning of the last century. 
So, you know, you've got thousands and thousands of years. It's the most successful means of transport apart from our own feet that we've ever had. You know, and that's, you know, that came off the, off the, the Eurasian steppe and it was brought by, well, firstly achieved by, by nomads and, and also brought by, by nomads. So yeah, I mean that's you know it, it's it's fascinating, and there are there are some great books on the horse that to be read that uh, if, that are in my in my bibliography, and that's the whole story of how it shaped our world. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Now, I made you an apologist a little bit for Genghis Khan. Let's do both. I and there's a really interesting line in the book that I loved, which is that he recognised that a ruler of an empire must build a house, banqueting hall and council chamber, but his were made of wood and so could be dismantled. So he's going around sort of setting it up everywhere. Um, so there's a challenge here for him of balancing all those sort of the mobile traditions 
alongside the need for a capital city to have a proper empire. Tell us about Attila. Well, Attila is, he was probably born in Hungary. um, So he, his, his tribe came off the, off the steps, but he himself was brought up more or less in, in a settled environment. But he's certainly part of the nomadic tradition, and he chose to identify himself and to live in a nomadic way. So uh, as you say, his, you know, he recognizes he needs a capital. But first of all, he only comes, comes west of the Danube, which was you know, one of the sort of frontier points of the Roman Empire. And this is in the 400, early 400s of, of our era because of global warming, climate change, and, and there was a problem of tribes on the steppes, one after the other, the Goths, the Huns, and, and, and lots of others came because of, of this need for grazing. And they cross over the Danube. The, the Roman emperor at the time, Valens, was very keen for them not to, and then recognized he couldn't stop them. So he allowed, for instance, the Goths initially to settle in Thrace, in, in, um, in Greece. But the problem with it for Attila was he didn't necessarily want to come into the Roman Empire. He wanted to trade. And the Romans kept closing the, the trading posts. And each time they did that, he would invade and cause in, immense d- distress and destroy vast numbers of, of Roman legions. And then, and then he would get what he wanted. But he didn't necessarily want the, the Roman Empire. I mean, not initially. And so when, you know, each, each time he'll go another incursion into the Roman Empire and he'll destroy a city and then he'll pull back to his, to his land because what he wanted was an open market. And eventually he, well, more and more he wanted tribute because he recognized that he could, he was stronger than the Romans. He could defeat the, the great Roman armies. And so the tributes get bigger and bigger. And, and there's a wonderful description from one of the Roman ambassadors to uh, a man called Priscus, who goes to, to see Attila. And so we have first-hand description of, of, you know, of this great ruler. And what strikes Priscus is that Attila is a family man. He's presented you know, with, his, with his son sitting beside him, and he's clearly very affectionate to them. His wife is who, and the only, the only fixed building in, in the entire city of Attila, which still hasn't been found, is that we, we rely on Priscus's description for it, was the bathhouse that Attila built for one of his wives, or his chief wife, which couldn't be dismantled. I think that was out of stone, but everything else was, yeah, you could take it down and move with it. But he's clearly a man who, you know, Priscus sits there thinking, wow, this is a man who's, who's famous for his savagery, and yet he's actually quite modest. He controls a large chunk of the world. He's ex- immensely wealthy. And, and Priscus is given a gold platter to eat off, and everybody else is eating off gold, and they're all, you know, they're all eating fancy food. But Attila is there with his wooden bowl eating straightforward meat, straight out of, straight out of the nomad world, you know, drinking fermented mare's milk. And, you know, and he, he's, he's a nomad at heart, and he only gets pulled further and further into, into the Roman, Roman world because the Romans keep on opposing him and won't give him what he wants, which is the right to, right to trade. So eventually, he, yeah, he effectively brings down the, the Western Roman Empire and reduces the Eastern one around Byzantium, Constantinople, to a very small, very small part. And, but but it's, it's interesting because had he lived a little bit longer, Attila, he may well have settled somewhere. 
he he never lived to take Rome. He defeated another massive Roman Roman army in a sort of devastating battle. But then then he died. Um, and I think because this is the case with several of them, I think he died after another because he, he took another bride and another massive bridal banquet and and night in bed with a with a, with a with a younger woman and had a heart attack. I think that was the end of Genghis Khan. <laughs> but had he not done that, had he lived. He may well have taken Rome, and had he taken Rome, he may well have settled there. But up until then, there was this sort of unfinished business, so he wasn't going to settle. He was still, he was restless. He still had things to do. Now, we're coming up to when we'll switch over to questions. We've only just got started. We've only just started. Well, I haven't even touched on the Native Americans, and um, you've got a very interesting book about Benjamin Franklin, the founding father, and puzzled puzzled why people wanted to live in that way. What what happened when, you know, the the founding fathers met the Native Americans in terms of these very different lifestyles? And was that, I mean, obviously we know there was a huge disaster for the Native Americans, but um, but the nomad lifestyle was a real clash. <laughs> it, it was. And I mean, obviously not all of the Native Americans were nomadic, but but many of them were. But the, it's it's fascinating because... Benjamin Franklin, who's living in the settlement of Pennsylvania, can't understand why settlers who've been captured by the Native Americans and live with them for a while and then being brought back into the settlement won't stay. Given the first opportunity, and this is not just men but women as well, they'll go back into what he called the, a wandering life. The reverse applies as well, and that is that Native American children who are being offered free education in the great schools and settlements were very loath to come, and there, there's a meeting between the the, elder, the Native American elders and the elders from the settlement, and and the the, Nat- the Native Americans say, "Well, we sent some kids to you for an education once, and when they came back to us, they were good for absolutely nothing. Why would we do it again?" And and Fra- Franklin is fascinated because he can't. He said, "With all the all the advantages of arts and sciences, why is this the case?" And it, it comes down to the fact he realizes you have to live a, work a lot harder and longer to make your living in a settlement than you do out in in the natural world with the with the people who move around. And obviously, it, the ease. The I mean, he's he's clearly a, from from the day he was born, he was going to work every moment, every day till he died. And he achieved enormous things. But he doesn't understand there are people who would just be quite happy just to hang out and, and, and live well. And it, he just doesn't get it at all. So it's a complete misunderstanding on both sides. Let's turn to, um, we've got some great questions. So um, I'll start with Isabel's question. Do you think that the creation of settled civilizations was essentially a mistake? Would we be happier and healthier if we still lived in small groups on the hoof, we might we might be happier according to what you've just said. <laughs> well, we might be healthier as well. That's that's for sure as well. Would we be? Now, I think there are some people who are, who are who would be much much happier on the move. And the challenge now, I mean, there are there are vast numbers of people, for instance, in the United States who live in in what they call wheel estate rather than real estate. They live out of a truck, a van, or whatever. And and they they're really it's really a, a counterculture and the, the film Nomadland touched on that. So these are people who literally are, are rootless, although they do gather at several places in several fixed times of the year, sort of as as all tribes tend to do. But would we be happy? Yeah, it really depends on on who you are. I mean, some of us have clearly evolved. I mean, I know my mother would have been absolutely miserable 
else. I mean, you know, grass was something of a challenge for her. So, so you know, no, she needed somewhere where her heels were not were not going to sink into the ground and and where there were no creepy crawly things. Nomad life, and also she liked to travel with a lot of luggage. So nomad life would not be for her. But I think you know, and this is one of the really big big ideas behind the book, and that is, yeah, we are living in a time of immense social cultural, political change, you know, that, and I think that the world that came into being at the time of the Enlightenment is, you know, this, this Western dominated world is, is, is coming to an end and we're on the way to something else. And it might be that there are ideas that, that we can draw down from a lighter way of living, from a living in, in tune with that natural world, which nomads are obliged to do because they're absolutely at its mercy. Um, and which we in cities find very easy to, to forget. You know, we, we you go to the supermarket and you only you only notice where things come from when they're not there. It's like, what do you mean? And then you realize that Brexit stopped the supply of French cheese or something or whatever it was. Um, but otherwise, we don't even have to think about these things. And I think a lot of people would be much happier living a simpler life on the move. Yes. But one thing that you do say in the book, there's a sort of theme across different populations where it's sort of soft lambs breed soft men and they have this idea that you know the third or fourth generation when they start settling behind walls they give into luxury and then they lose touch with the people so there's two things there if we had a more nomadic lifestyle would we have a more equal society and then the flip, flip side of that is there is bits of this life that are really, really hard, surely. Yeah, there, there are. And uh, the, this, this idea you, you've mentioned is from the, the Arab philosopher Ibn Khaldun's 14th, early 15th century. And he, you know, he, he believes that uh, you know, he's, he's, he's an Arab, so he looks at the Arab empire and he looks further back into, into deep history and he's seen kingdoms he's living in North Africa come and go. Um, and they've all been founded and initially by nomadic peoples. And so he described, he divides people into different categories and he describes the purest people as the people who live in the desert because they are untouched by the, the needless desires of people who live in the city. And, and as you say, he describes, you know, the, that many empires are created by people who've come out of either the desert or the mountains or off the steppes and, and have that initial force, which is dissipated by settlement and by and by softened by palace life, and and that uh, yes, as you say, three four generations and and things are on the slide. And also, you because you live in a settled place and in a palace, you lose touch with the people who who gathered around you and allowed you to create the thing in the first place. And there's very much a sense in this of 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 a renewal that carried on throughout the world. But the world was eff effectively refreshed by by nomads coming until really until uh, we invented machine guns and things like that, which no amount of sort of nomad valor and vigor was going to get past, uh, you know, cannons and the Maxim gun and things like that. I love this next question, which I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> Are the super it who travel the world and never stay put anywhere very long than new nomads? Excellent. Ah, uh, yes. Well, okay, the word nomad... Very, very, very old Indo-European word, and it literally means, in its original form, nomos, means somebody who goes in search of pasture or somebody who has the right to graze their herd on a particular patch of land. But you know, we are we live in the twenty-first century, and 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 as my book moves moves forward, I do shift the meaning of the of the word nomad. And yeah, there are people who live on the move now, who you know, who digital nomads and others who who 
are, I mean, okay, they're not grazing. They're not, they're not coming with their sheep or their goats or whatever, or their horses. But in many, many respects, they are living exactly that way. And there's a lovely story that Bruce Chatwin wrote about uh, a, who, a man who he thought was a pure nomad. And that is, he, was an, he was an English salesman who traveled around Africa with suitcase, you know, flight to flight, hotel to hotel. And the only solid fixed point in his life was a box that was in a lockup in London, in a locker in London. And he, if he wanted to put something into the box because the box was full, he would have to throw something away. And, and Chatwin thought, you know, this is a man not only who has something to, to teach us, uh, those of us who acquire too many things to, you know, to be happy, but also um, in terms of moving around. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I don't mind people calling themselves digital nomads or, or others. It's fine. We haven't talked much about religion and how it interacts with nomadism. This question is sort of asking about that. Is there a particular kind of religion that nomads tend to follow? They obviously can't build temples or altars to their gods, and that's from Stella. Well, they do. I mean, they do build shrines. And in fact, many, many of the shrines that then turn into temples, that then turn into cities, and I'm thinking, for instance, of of Ur in, in uh, Mesopotamia, which is now Iraq, or even Baghdad. I mean, these places were initially somewhere that, that nomads passed by and left a, you know, left a, a mark because it was sacred for some reason that we can't maybe quite understand today because we've lost, the, lost, you know, lost that initial knowledge. And then they evolve and evolve and they become, wow, it's a, it, it's a temple. And then around the temple will, it, will it evolve a village, a town and a city. But I, I opened the book with, and this is quite contentious, with a place called Gobekli Tepe in, in Turkey, which was built around 9,500 BC and is one of, if not the oldest, built stone monument in the world. It, it's, it, imagine a, a big circle of pillars that are about, T-shaped pillars that are about 10, 12 feet high with two bigger ones in the middle. There's about 12 on the outside. And there's lots and lots of circles on the hillside. And it seems to have been that initially this was this was a nomadic initiative because of something that we can't understand something sacred in that place so and because they were all almost all nomads are in were in touch with the natural world and therefore with this with what they believed to be the spirits of the world as we did in europe until you know until well a thousand years ago we all would have watched the, the shadows as we moved across a field because of the spirits that would be living in it i mean that was that was a given with all humans um, we did away with it. Many nomads didn't. They still have that sense of the sacredness of certain places. So yeah, I think that you know religion has been important. But as I mentioned, the the with, with certainly with the Mongols and the sort of great Mongol Renaissance that precedes the European Renaissance, it doesn't matter whether you're a, whether you're a Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, a Buddhist, or or an atheist. It, it was not it was not important. And there's a lovely story of, of a of a of a Christian friar going to uh, going to see, I think it's Genghis Khan, and and you know, and he's already been blessed by the by the Muslims, and he's been and it's like, okay, well, you might as well come and bless me as well. If it works, it works. It's fine. Um, you've actually got a question about the place in Turkey you mentioned. What do we know about the people who built it? And is it true that they're the same ones who buried it? And forgive me for not saying it. I was terrified I'd mispronounce it. <laughs> Gobekli Tepe. We don't know, we don't know very much about it. Uh, it was it was only uncovered in the 1990s by a wonderful man called Klaus Schmidt, and in the yeah in the late 90s he started excavating, and they're still excavating today. And they found other similar sites from the same sort of period, 
in in that area, and I'm sure there's a lot lot more to be discovered. So we don't we really don't know very much about them, except my understanding is that they were people who who moved hunt, hunter gatherers who were following the movement of of game because at that point all that area of Turkey, what's now Turkey, was uh, savanna and woodland. So they would have been moving, and, and there's one particular place where this where this temple is, where Göbekli Tepe is, which is a, a gully. So if you were going to chase game into a into a trap, that would be a perfect place. And they found lots and lots and lots of game bones there from, you know, and, and then as things went on, they obviously ate everything there there was to, to be eaten around there. And because they kept on coming back to it because they were building this place. And then they, you have the beginning of cultivation. So Gobekli Tepe might actually be the place that the agricultural evolution starts because the first, <coughs> this first strain of domesticated wheat was found about 25 miles away. Oh, how interesting. Okay, we've got a question from Marie <coughs> Christine. I'm fascinated by the Scythians and she's been to visit one of their burial sites. I wanted to ask if there are any descendants of the Scythians living today? Oh, good question. Well, perhaps if there are any who are listening in, they could make themselves known <laughs> to you now. Hands up anybody who's a Scythian. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, yes, inevitably, there must be, genetically, there must be, obviously, um, as there are, you know, I mean, the, you mentioned Genghis Khan and his, and his sexual proclivity. I can't remember, the, but there's the, the, a significant amount of his DNA has been spread around the world. So, so yeah, there must be Scythian DNA in the world as well. There must be. Did nomads enslave other people? Yes, everybody did. It, it, I mean, it depends what you call enslaving. I mean, they they drove them forward into in, in battle. You'd often use your the captured enemies as to, to draw the first fire. And yeah, with we we have very good records of of Timur or Tamerlane as he moved his way through the Middle East, and particularly this moment where I describe, which I talked about, where where he meets Ibn Khaldun, the great this great historian and sociologist. And we know that he, that a huge number of people were sent east by, by Timur. But these were people who had skills, who had, you know, they were, they were craftspeople because he was building these beautiful cities of Samarkand and others in, in, in the east. And it was the same with, with Genghis, Genghis Khan. And so, for instance, in Karakoram, in its first iteration, there was a, a famous Parisian jeweler who'd been captured and, and had been enslaved and sent to Karakoram because all of the best workmen were going there because that was effectively the, the most, the center of the world at that point. It was the, 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 the capital of the richest empire in the world. And so obviously they wanted, they wanted to bring the, bring the best that they could get to it. But what was interesting is that a priest, a Christian priest from, from, from Europe, goes and finds this Parisian jeweler and offers him he said, I'll buy you your freedom. And he says, no, 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 I'm quite happy where I am, thank you. And I, I worked out, you know, he was being paid millions of pounds, the equivalent of millions of pounds today, to build beautiful things for the nomads. So he had started out a slave, and I'm sure that the story for many, many people was absolutely miserable. But some of them, if you had, I mean, they, with a lot of people, there was a desire to use the skills. It's the same with scholars, you know, the nomads are often just accused of destroying libraries, but that's certainly not my understanding of it. They moved libraries, yes, and they moved a lot of the scholars, but and particularly to do with astrology, astronomy, because they were very much directed by the movement of stars and signs and portents. So they, they, um, 
you know, in the same way that London in the beginning of the 20th century, the world's great city, you know, we attracted all sorts of people. We didn't bring them as slaves, but we attracted them here. And it was exactly the same with the nomads, except, yeah, they were enslaved. I mean, the same way that most feudal people were enslaved as well. We haven't talked too much about language. Christine Robinson asked, do nomadic people usually have their own unique language? No. They may well have done a long, long time ago, but not anymore. No, no. They, um, you know, the Bakhtiari, I mean, they had, they, in Iran, who, who I had spent some time with, they had their, their dialect, but effectively they're, they're speaking, they, you know, they're, they speak the same language as most other people in Iran. So I think no, you, will, you will disagree strongly with this question. Um, oh. Do you agree that some scholars have exaggerated the importance of nomads throughout history? Much recent DNA and archaeological evidence shows that demographic and linguistic change happen not so much through one group of people on the move invading the territory of another, but through trade and other forms of cultural contact. Well, yes and no, because I think uh, trade and those other forms of cultural contact are very, very, very often happen because of the people who live between two settled, two fixed points. And I'm, I, so, I, for instance, I, I get excited about the Scythians and the Shongnu because they are the mobile part, counterpart to the the Han Chinese and the Romans, and and they are the ones who move things from side to side. There's not. We don't know of any Chinese trader who ever made it into who ever made it to the Roman court, and we don't know of any Roman who made it to the Chinese court. And yet, we know that they were trading with each other. I mean, uh, one, I can't remember one of the one of the might be Cicero or one of the great Roman writers complaining about how much of the of the of the national wealth is being spent on Chinese silk, so women can you know can can, can flirt and whatever. It, it happens because nomads are in between. And it's the same with what I call the, the Mongol Renaissance, this, this great flourishing. The, the, Pax, the Pax Mongoliana, the, the, the peace that they bring about, is just as, as great and, and, mu- and just as far-reaching in terms of consequences for the world as the Roman one. And you know, they, they bring about the, the, the connection between East and West. They, they, they are the, the, the link between the world. And they wouldn't have happened with settled people. And, and so yes and no is my answer. I agree and I fully disagree. And I don't think you can, own, I mean, you can't overestimate the influence of nomads in, in global history because it's mostly either ignored or completely played down and marginalized as these are bloodthirsty killers. So no, we need more. Saul has got an excellent question that brings us up to the current day. Did you have any contact with modern day travelers and Roma when you were writing your book? Travelers in Roma, no, I didn't. I, I assume you mean the European ones. No, my experiences are all in Africa and Asia, not in not in Europe. Although I actually I did see some of the transhumans in, in southern France where they move the herds between summer and winter pasture. But no, but I, I think that, uh, firstly, there's a brilliant, brilliant book that still applies from Isabel Fonseca uh, about the Roma. And the title is something like bury my heart or something like that. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And it, 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 I think she wrote it about 15 years ago, maybe longer, but it's still absolutely poignant and to the point. But I think, you know, that they're a good example of, and there are many, many others. I mean, when, obviously I could have got, gone on researching this book forever, for several more lifetimes. And everywhere I went, I met people who'd say, oh, you should come too. For instance, I remember sitting in Isfahan in Iran, and I met a woman from Bulgaria who said, we still have nomads in the mountains who are still speaking Greek, uh, you know, the, of, of the Greek of Homer. 
And if you come, I'm going to show. I'll take you to meet them. And I, and I think Paddy Lee Fermor wrote about them when he was traveling through Eastern Europe. But I, you know, how how much can you do? I mean, this, you know, this book it already took eight years of my life. You know, it's enough. It's enough. <laughs> but do you think some of the same? I think what perhaps Saul was interested in does some of the same themes apply in how we treat the traveler community? In Britain and 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 in other parts of Europe, as how they've been treated his, across history. Oh, absolutely! It's, it's completely, it's absolutely the same. And that is, you know, a, a mistrust and ascribing all sorts of terrible things to them, which they're people. They, you know, they people everywhere do good things and bad things, and and so I'm sure the Roma and travellers do as well. But they also do good things. But that it it's, comes comes out of this sense of oh my god, why have they come? Why have they come here? What are they doing? And what you know. When will they go? And and governments here, I mentioned, you know, that in Iran, that they're very keen, and and I saw this in Egypt as well with with you know, with Bedou, wanting to settle people, and that's what we want to do here, with with ours. But I I think there is an absolutely essential function that that uh, nomadic and mobile people perform for us, for us who live between fixed walls. And and I think we should recognise that. I think that's a lovely place to end. My thanks to Anthony Satin, to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.